Are you concerned about hitting your revenue targets this month, quarter, or year? Your answer is Value Prime Solutions, a sales training and marketing optimization company leveraging the value selling framework. Visit www.valueprimesolutions.com and start accelerating your results. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. If you have to jump early or not able to listen to the entire show, please visit the website, b2brevexec.com. You'll be able to find a link to today's interview as well as others we've conducted. In addition to some blog posts and other highly relevant content we've put up there to help uh, enable your ability to beat your targets. I believe today's conversation is going to provide a great deal of value to those that are in the professional services arena, sales professionals who target enterprise type deals where complex relationship dynamics are the norm. I am lucky to have with me Mark McKinney and Steve Fedorko, authors of My Client is the Devil and Other Myths. Both are psychologists with PhDs from the University of Texas at Arlington and have spent a great deal of their careers in professional services. Uh, today, Mark is the SVP of Marketing and Corporate Strategy at Bottle Rocket Studios, a digital agency based in Dallas. And Steve is founder of the Fedorco Group and routinely consults with Fortune 500 clients. Gentlemen, I want to thank you again for your time today. I greatly appreciate it. Looking forward to our discussion. As a way of getting started, how about a, how about a little background? How did you two meet and what was it in your careers that made you realize there was a need for a book like this? Well, uh, this is Steve, and Mark and I both met in graduate school. We both have a big interest in psychology, and it was a natural affiliation there, and, and uh, a lot of the same interest. And uh, we went on afterwards to actually work in academe for a while, which was uh, where we were intended at first. But we had such compelling reasons for friends of ours to try to come into business because they use psychology everywhere. And so uh, we spent time in the professional services realm, everything from marketing and ad agencies to corporate training to IT. and uh, last years were spent in the, the marketing arena, and we saw a lot of the same issues that were happening with professional services, like in marketing, that had to do with the stuff we'd learned in psychology, and we thought we could do a lot of help there. In fact, we were doing it kind of impromptu as just being psychologists that happened to work in marketing agencies, and uh, so we decided to put the book together and offer it as a workshop and also you know, one-on-one instruction. So practicing psychologists that transitioned into professional services types of arena? It would be. Like I said, we left academe years ago, and which is a very nice life, by the way, by itself. But uh, <laughs> great opportunity to work. We didn't realize how much psychologists were used in business everywhere. And this particular aspect was a nice overlay of our experience in that field, as well as what we could offer being psychologists. Excellent. Excellent. Was the transition difficult for people in business to... Kind of accept, right? You don't think of uh, of psychologists typically when you think of, you know, big business. There's obviously a lot of psychology that goes on, but I'm curious, was there, as you made that transition, did you have to do a lot of explaining why psychologists were leaving academia? This is Mark. We didn't have to do a lot of explaining because fortunately, both of us, the first step out of academics and into the business world was into a business that was a multimedia training business. And training, education, psychology have a fairly natural overlap. And so uh, people weren't all that surprised 
But what would happen sometimes is we'd get in, introduced to clients and it would be, well, I, we'd like you to meet Dr. Fedorko or, or Dr. McKinney. And that would lead to classic uh, questions like, well, what's your doctorate in, you know, and we would say psychology and people would say, oh, you must be analyzing me. <laughs> and uh, classic, classic retort on that is only if you're paying me a hundred dollars, right? <laughs> I don't suppose either one of you guys are poker players, probably a little bit too much information on myself, but my therapist is actually uh, a poker player. I've always thought that psychologists had an uneven edge in playing poker. Not that that's anything you guys have to worry about, but it was uh, the, the analysis <laughs> comment made me think about that. So you guys were in academia together, transitioned out, did some training. I, I'm curious, when did you realize there was a need for this book? I was uh, working as the managing director of a digital marketing agency. And my account services people were in my office really almost daily. And it would be, oh, the client's doing this. It's terrible. I can't believe they're doing this. Why are they picking on me? And it just really became kind of a a real repetitive kind of activity. And uh, I thought, you know, this is an interesting question because while the client maybe is not doing what you want them to do, they're also paying us a lot of money. (laughs) And so it's really not okay to tell them to, you know, uh, get off somewhere. So uh, I started thinking, these people have a pretty stressful life. In marketing, these are often fairly young people. It might be their first, second job out of college. And uh, I was just noticing that they didn't have any skill set or any tool set to deal with this other than to complain to other people and then go out and drink after work. And uh, both of those are pretty good, but they, they wear thin after a while. And so I started thinking maybe some of those things that I used to teach patients Uh, you know, literally patients uh, in inpatient and outpatient settings could be applicable to these people who are having a very stressful day often. It's interesting in professional services. I've been in for a lot of years. And I think if you asked any professional services person uh, who the worst client was, they'll, oh, let me tell you, right? There's always one that seems to scar them more than others. And and the, the book was interesting because it's, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about how you help uh, the clients, but there hasn't been as much focus on how you help yourself become better at helping the clients, right? Which is, which was one of the things that really spoke to me about the book. I'm curious though, what, what made you guys settle on the title? <laughs> well, I think that's, that's a great question. And, and part of it is that we literally would hear this from people we worked with that actually would say, you know, I've got the client from hell or my client is the <laughs> devil who asked me to do this. So it, we didn't have to even look far from it. And we, it just pointed out to us how how really entrenched that belief can be. And these people are particularly stressed because they have a client to please. They have teams that they work with that often they aren't direct managers of. They're just working with those people to coordinate their work. They've got their own manager. Often if it's a smaller agency, there's also an owner around. So they get pulled in every direction. So they have a limited amount of authority, but a lot of responsibility. So that kind of came naturally, but we wanted to play on the old part of, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder that we're not so much disturbed by, the events of the world, but the view we take of those. And I know there's nothing new to Mark and Steve in terms of that. That's very old psychology, even philosophy back thousands of years. But it's very true. And it's easy when it's one of your first jobs, you have a big demanding uh, uh, portfolio of clients to forget that and to and, and be really stressed about things. And we saw this all the time with people, especially when they had long-term relationships with clients. And they were actually not taking care of themselves very well. They were trying very hard to please everybody. And, uh, you know, you can't really... Do a great job until you've taken care of yourself well, too. 
I'll Hello. tell you, Chad, interestingly, we have to always point out the uh, second title yeah. Yeah. because we'll get people who'll see the title of the book, My Client is the Devil, and they'll immediately begin, oh, I know exactly what you mean. I've got one just like that. <laughs> and we have to point out, notice that it says, and other myths. myths. <laughs> and Chad, i got to add this to we. Our workshops are typically a half day or a day. And we clearly spend, what, about 20, 30 minutes at the beginning, near the beginning of each workshop, uh, hearing the stories from others about why your client is a devil. And there, there's never a shortage. We have to cut it short. But we, we get through that so that people can get that part out. And then we spend the bulk of the, of the workshop, of course, focusing on, you know, there's really another way to look at things. And there's ways, many ways, good ways to take care of yourself as you go through this very uh, demanding job. Yeah, it becomes a cathartic, almost purging, right? Get it out of the way oh, yeah. so you can... Oh. Get, get to the point where you can help them. You've got to start by letting them admit that they do have a client that is the devil and getting that rather than saying, well, it's all been a myth. Let us tell you stuff. So it works that way. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, that it was kind of older, older psychology or, or uh, philosophy has been around for years. But I mean, there's a huge resurgence in, in this right now. And I think some of it, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I see it a lot with clients that are struggling with integrating millennials into the workforce, or you have people that have been doing it uh, for enough years that they've gotten into uh, bad habits of not taking care of themselves. Right. I mean, I've pulled my fair share of all nighters to make sure we could deliver something to a customer that was being unreasonable and we couldn't figure out how to, you know, get them off that unreasonable goal. But I think it's extremely uh, important and powerful to help people be consciously competent of the now, of, of right now and, and their role in these, in these dynamics. When you go through the book, uh, you've divided it up into three main areas, personal competence, social competence, and leadership competence. I'm, I'm curious how we arrived at those three. Well, part of it was, first of all, they build on each other and, and they're, they're roughly units of the book. And the first part about personal confidence is you can't get anywhere, do anything unless you've learned to take care of yourself. And so you got to be a little selfish, focus on the self and say, I'm not going to be good to anybody else, at least until I take care of myself. And so we focus a lot on some basic things that would let you do that. And so once you can manage stress, even prevent stress, you know, learn to understand who you are and what you value, then you're going to be healthier right off the bat. You're going to have higher emotional intelligence, and you're also going to have a foundation which you can build those important skills like being competent in social situations with others and being competent as a leader. So there's a natural progression to that. Uh, the, the second part about social competence is really, can you, can you learn to be a good listener? Can you learn to have good conversational communication with others? And can you truly understand things? Because that's going to let you go further in your own job and also reduce the stressful nature of things as it stands. And the last section about leadership competence is really a stretch where you get to where you can understand where there would be new opportunities, understand what it takes to, to be a champion for causes and for direction, to actually lead by example, to put things together in terms of um, being what we call psychologically hardy. It wasn't our term, but it's a theory that we've worked on and elaborated in the book. And it's called many different things. I hear today in the literature about personal grit is popular. It's right. part multiple intelligence. This idea about being self-reliant and being, you know, uh, secure in yourself and, and believing you can move on and do things. And that usually involves leading others or at least by example, just living that way. Have you guys found as you do workshops and we'll talk about that. I've got that as a, as a question towards the back, but have you found that it's, it requires a different approach based on the age range of the people that you have in class or people that may be, you know, better at EQ or, or have more developed EQ than, than other elements? Is there challenges that you're seeing that, that kind of go across the, the ages and the generations that may be different? 
I think there are to some degree. There are certain factors that just lead to people being more able to manage these kind of complex relationships. And one of those is experience, right? There's just no substitute for experience and the opportunity to practice things over and over again. You know, we all know that we need 10,000 hours of practice to become an expert at things and relationships are no different than that. But I'll tell you that there are also some other factors that probably aren't necessarily related to age or experience in the workplace. For instance, just the uh, ability to uh, believe that you have an impact in the world. And this seems to be a psychological trait, if you will. There are people who believe the world does things to them, and there are people that believe that they uh, take action and affect the world. And it's the people that have an approach that I mentioned last that they believe their actions affect the world, that can actually see themselves as more hardy, more effective, more uh, able to control situations. And so I do think that the experience that you gain from doing this over and over again might give you a little bit of an edge. But of course, the problem is if you've got a lot of experience doing it wrong, all you've done is you've built a bad habit of doing it wrong. I'll tell you that we probably don't see it break down by generational or um, cohort uh, areas as much as you see other skills break down. There are millennials that are actually very, very good at being psychologically hardy. And there are some boomers like me uh, who maybe have uh, built some bad habits along the way. So uh, it, it, it might be a little bit of an edge to the old guys, but not much. Excellent. And when you work with, you know, classes and let's say you have somebody who has those bad habits, how do you guys go about, I don't want to say breaking down, let's say revising, maybe how, how do you help them? You know, what, what, what's kind of your approach to making sure that they're, they're going to come out the other side and, and be better prepared? You know, Chad, when we go into the workshop and it's, it's a mixed group anyhow, even if it's the same agency or the same law firm or whatever it might be, and people are all different, they have different levels of success, but we bring up to everyone that everyone's already successful in that room. You're already you're doing a job, you got through college, you did what you had to do, and we're there to try to give people some suggestions about ways that might offer them another way to look at life. So we put a lot out there. And the intention isn't that we'll tell you these 10 different wonderful things and we'll practice them and all 30 of you will use all 10 of them. It's more like we're going to present to you some things that have worked well for other people. And uh, we think they, they could be very effective depending on your taste and proclivities and directions you'd like to go. So it's very much of us offering stuff and in addition to whatever they've done to be successful to where they are now. As I mentioned, Mark and I both worked in clinical realm before back in our academic days. And so you're often dealing with people that have reached a level of discomfort and dysfunction in their lives and actually need some help just to get back into being able to function in a society. But when we're working now in the workshops, we're dealing with people that are already out and showing that they can be very successful and effective with what they do, but they might be taking a bigger burden on it psychologically than they need to to do that. So we're, we come up with suggestions and people pick where they'd like to go. One of the things we do like to do, Chad, is to uh, let people sort of discover, right? The, the Socratic method is a terrific teaching method. And so what we often do is we basically sort of set it up, right? Tell us about your worst client. Oh, I can tell you about that client. They're terrible. And uh, tell us about how that affects you. Oh, it's awful. I go home. I don't sleep well. Uh, you know, I kick the dog, whatever. Uh, okay. Uh, so, so if that's where we're at, 
how are you going to get better? And when we ask that question, often there's a puzzled look like, well, I, I'm not going to get better. It's just going to be that way. I'm just going to have to deal with it. And then you ask the obvious question. If there was a way that you could actually not feel stressed at the end of the day or a way that you could actually feel like you've had a great day, would you be interested in hearing about that? You know the classic uh, approach to selling, right? Yep. Lead with the benefit. <laughs> and so one of the one of the things we try and do is after we've given people a chance to kind of tell us their horror stories, we sort of begin to paint a picture of leading with the benefit and uh, then ask them the obvious question. Would you like to find out how to be that way? And, you know, you, you don't get a lot of pushback, right? People will say, well, sure, I'll listen. And some of the good news is that some of these things are so blatantly obvious that when you share them with people, they go, oh, yeah, I knew that. I just wasn't doing that. And so it's not that you're giving them great knowledge they've never had. It's just you're reminding them to use some skills that maybe they've let lay fallow. And is that you know the, the concept of mindfulness that we come across in the book? And it very much we see this, you know, when we do work with customers and, and sales training and sales. And nothing that we do is, is rocket science. Now, there's a lot more science behind what, what you guys are, are working to do. But in many cases, we find it's just they're not what we call consciously competent. They're not being aware. So I'm curious how you guys have built in the, that concept of mindfulness. And do you find that walking them through that? discovery process do you see the light bulb go on what kind of reactions do you get? you know it, it is interesting because um and i think that's part of the reason we'll do a half day or a full day workshop and because there is a transition at, at, at the way the group evolves and and you know you can imagine this but people often come in very skeptic because they don't know you and and you know their <laughs> manager decided it's a good idea for this workshop and what can you possibly offer me etc yeah. you know especially that's, that's usually me in the back of the room, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You've done works like this with physicians and other and lawyer groups. You can imagine how they're like, what could you possibly bring for me? But I, I don't want to disparage the whole group. But but people are rightfully just thinking, I could be doing work right now. I have a lot to do. And so I think it's reinforcing for us to see, maybe we're imagining this, but as the day goes on, you see people slowly warming up to at least entertaining an idea you bring forward. And people practice things, and they see their colleagues practice something, and they see you model something. And so little by little, I think people become uh, more warm to the idea as the day goes on. And of course, having lunch in the middle of the day helps also. But, but they, I think this actually, I think by the end of the day, I think we see these results. That if we have people leaving that at least consider some of the things that were presented and discussed and practiced, then on their own time, in their own pace, in their own direction, they do this on their own, then that's great if it's made a difference. In fact, one of the, the little sneaky psychologist trip that we kind of enjoy is it's inevitable that at the end of a, a session, somebody's doing stuff and they say, you know, this kind of stuff would work with my clients, but it kind of would work at home too with my wife and kids. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, these, these principles are so basic, you know, that's part of it. And so they're, they're, mani- they're learning to manage stress wherever it happens in their life. You mentioned the mindfulness uh, portion, and that is in the leadership uh, part. So it's towards the end of the day. But we like to do an exercise that we've done over and over and over again, and it never fails to get a good response. We actually have people role play a uh, scenario, and it's a pretty simple scenario of a person who manages a small retail store who has a customer bringing an item back for return. 
And uh, so we, we walk people through and they take parts and they read this little playlet of the store manager, Lynn, and a lady who never gets a name. I don't know why we never gave her a name. <laughs> She's just the lady who's returning a, an item. And we they do it initially in a mindless fashion, right? And so, of course, you can imagine Lynn sees her as a hassle and it's a lot of a problem and everything. And then we have another group read a second play about Lynn, who is now a mindful manager. And instead of seeing her as a problem, he sees her as an opportunity because she's bought from their store before. She's moved to a big new house and is buying a lot of new furniture. And so it's, you know, it's a classic uh, a goofus and gallant kind of comparison. But the funny thing is that we have them read the script. And at the end, we'll ask the audience, what did Lynn say differently? And they'll say a couple of things. They'll feel like it was very different, but in fact, it's not. And then they'll say, what did the lady say differently? And in fact, it's exactly the same. But what's changed is what you uh, have a narrator say, this is what's going on inside of Lynn's head. And so in one case, he's saying, I can't believe she came to my store. What a hassle. Can't wait to get her out of the door. And in another case, he's saying she lives in a brand new house. She buys our furniture. What a gold mine. (laughs) And so just by hearing Lynn thinking in a different way, people get the point that it's not what Lynn is saying. He can look like he's being very competent, but if he's telling himself a story of how horrible it is, it's horrible. And if he's telling himself a story of how great it is, it's great. And mindful people know how to tell themselves stories that lead to terrific outcomes, not to feeling miserable and, and beat down at the end of the day. Yeah, that that concept, that context concept of, you know, you, you're bringing your own context to it is extremely powerful. Uh, mm-hmm. It requires that mindfulness and that awareness, though. It's a hard thing to... It's difficult, right? It's a challenge for many of us. I'm, I'll throw my hand up too and say me too. I mean, between the emails and the text messages and the phone calls and, and the digital onslaught that we all get day in and day out, and then the home life and the dogs and the kids and things like that. How do you help them return to that state when they're not in the, in the class with you, right? Doing it in a, I don't want to say a the doctor setting because it's, I mean, it's a workshop, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? When you're in a classroom, it's different. How do you, how do you help enable them so that they can return to that spot? Yeah. And that really goes back to that first portion of the workshop, which is the personal competence, because in that we teach a couple of skills. One of those skills we call, uh, actually, we don't call it, uh, psychologists call it cognitive reframing. And there's an actual uh, written exercise that you can do to sit down and look at a circumstance where you've had negative feelings and analyze what was what was I saying to myself? What were my self-talks? And could I have different ones that would lead to different outcomes? And so what we ask people to do is we ask them to just try this as a homework exercise for a week or a couple of weeks. What you're trying to do is you're trying to build a separate habit. We've all got habits of things we say to ourselves that we grab quickly. And, you know, there's their classic ones of, you know, why me? Why now? That's not fair. But if you can train yourself to say different things, you can actually generate an entirely different set of feelings. So that kind of handing them a tool set that they can practice with at home is uh, one thing. And we also teach a little thing we call uh, a self-esteem exercise. And it's an amazingly psycho babble feeling kind of thing. (laughs) 
where people say nice things. I mean, it's a whole series of questions. It's in the book, and I think people might be interested to see it. It's really about a two- to three-minute exercise between two people, and it's very uh, rote. You you say something, and the other person acknowledges. They hear you, and you go back and forth. And it seems almost ridiculous when you read it. And then when people use it, unfailingly, they report, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how much better I feel. And they begin doing it not only with people at work, but with people at home. And uh, we've had many, many alums of our training sessions come back to us and say, the one thing that I keep doing over and over and over again is this little two to three minute exercise you taught us. Yeah, I think it's so, uh, I think it's the most popular piece. So we never neglect it. We always bring it out there. And I think people, when they they look on the surface, it's like, so this takes less time than flossing. And it's kind of pain, it costs nothing, and I feel fantastic, and the people I interact with feels fantastic. Because, you know, it's easy to come up and say, well, here's a solution for losing 30 pounds. It just means eat all, don't eat the things you love, work out all the time. You know, you know, wow, I don't want to do that. And all the other things we want to achieve, it usually has a cost or a sacrifice. And this is like, this is too easy. And so it's a, it's a very popular piece, and, and it's, it's definitely psychology-like. And so when you've, when you've worked with clients and, and they've, you know, people have read the book, you've taken them through these exercises and done these workshops, what type of uh, results have, has, have the businesses uh, experienced? What have they seen or reported back other than the individuals and, and liking that one exercise? I'm kind of curious what, what larger types of impacts are these, are these providing to these companies? Yeah, you know, I don't know that we've had a business actually sit down and say we're going to measure the ROI, but we have had businesses work to incorporate the language and the exercises and such into their uh, work. And then we'll come back and we'll check in with them at a six month period to see how prevalent the use of these tools still is in their practice. And what we found is that for the businesses where they still are practicing it, right? They've Mm -hmm. maintained the program. They're still using the tool set. They use the language. They talk to each other um, in the ways they learned in the workshop unfailingly, we'll get a report that it just seems like our clients' relationships are going better. We're not having as many arguments. We're not having as many fights. In one case, a customer or a client told us, you know, we are not having the churn in clients that we've had before. And so I don't think we can give you solid numbers on that, Chad, but I can tell you that when we check in and people still are using the program six months or a year later, they unfailingly report that they've had an uptick in the quality of the relationships they have with clients. And as you know, it's that relationship that really is the, the harbinger of whether or not you're going to keep doing good work with them. Oh yeah. People buy from people and you stay with people you trust. So if you can, if you can help enable them, that, that's huge amount of success for the organizations. Do you often have the opportunity to go back? So you do the workshop, you check in with them. Is there a, is there a way to follow up and, and maybe take it to the next level, another level of workshop or another level of engagement that people could, your companies could work with you on? Absolutely. And as Mark mentioned, uh, uh, we'll try to go back at least to six months, but often we'll do come back in a month or two, even just as a, kind of as a, a part of doing the workshop and maybe have a brown bag lunch with people that are interested because there, there'll be people that are trying to get started with some behavior change and they might have questions about now that I'm doing this, how do I solve this problem if it comes up? And so it's just a very informal question and answer part where we're just basically coaching and mentoring for that hour or so. 
And so we'll come back and do that if it fits the client's schedule. And you see people that are trying to make those transitions and trying to develop new repertoires for themselves. And so it's not a mandatory piece. It's not a, an all-day workshop. It's just, like I said, usually an hour lunch, and people are free to ask us questions. So we try to reinforce that. We've had people that have also asked for things like, this sounds great, I'm doing it. Uh, could you? Do you have any coaches in the area you could recommend me to? So people go in many different directions. But I think the key of this, all of this is, is that it at least looks like when there's an active workshop, there's an impetus for people to make some change. Some people might be happy with where they're at and they attend it and they listen and maybe it doesn't change much at all. But usually it affects people in some way and they'll pick up some some gem from the day. You know, it's interesting that we've had many people buy the book and learn on their own and they're that motivated to do that. But often it's a case where a manager sees the problems they're facing with with client churn or with burnout of good account service people and they'll bring it in as a workshop and so people it's like a launch pad i think for most people rather than here's the book with all the answers take it home and do it on your own it's more facilitated to be in a group and have that kick off and have some um, uh, dialogue about it and have some uh, examples and show through practice and see their own friends try that so that tends to work out i think pretty well and we do offer to people the opportunity to do coaching with Dr. Fedorko if they want to follow up on that in an individual manner. You know, it's not unusual, particularly for people who are in executive or uh, critical positions, to have that kind of coaching somewhere in their career. And so we have had uh, a handful of requests off of workshops for people to get a more one-to-one kind of uh, coaching experience. And, and is there something that you guys have seen with the companies that you've worked with, those that you check back in with, say, in a month, six months, whatever? Is there some some way they have uh, implemented or, or folded this into the organization most effectively? Some Does it become part of uh, onboarding for future people? Is there something that you've seen that really impressed you with how a company's kind of, you know, taken it, made it their own, made sure that they get the most out of it on an ongoing basis? Yeah, one one uh, company that we worked with, the client services group actually took some of the concepts and built a set of uh, checklists and tools that they use when they're basically onboarding new clients, right, to sort of set expectations about this is how we're going to communicate. And, you know, these are the sort of things you can expect from us. These are the kinds of um, ways that we like to work together. And uh, one company even began a process where, because we talk in the book a little bit about appreciating people's different personality styles and how some people may be more extroverted, some people may be more introverted and have different proclivities. At one company, there was a request to have us help them basically test not only the project teams, but the clients along with it to, so that they could understand <laughs> each other's personality and dynamics. So they could communicate better. It's, you know, it's a classic uh, kind of faux pas to assume somebody else's motivation from yours. Uh, A really solid extrovert will, without thinking about it, will assume an introvert who's sitting in a meeting saying nothing with their arms crossed is upset and not paying attention. When, in fact, that introvert is paying careful attention. They just don't like to speak till they have their thoughts fully formed. If you know that about that person, then you you see them and you think, oh, wow, they're paying great attention. Terrific. If you assume that they're like you and it's an extrovert, then you think, oh, 
they're not paying attention and there's something wrong. So we've had uh, one of our um, clients actually ask us to help them do these kinds of analyses with their clients. Mm-hmm. You know, Chad, there's two things I'd add to that. And, and one is that, and this is a true, I think, in most things, but when we're brought in often uh, to the degree that the that our client that's bringing us into a workshop uh, is a champion for these causes themselves and also emulates and leads by their own example, like takes on some of the vocabulary and some of the techniques that we're talking about, it makes a big impact in, in that agency itself as you'd expect that it would. So that's one of the indicators for us when things are working well. And usually they're pretty much true believers. So that helps out a lot. I don't, even if it's not formally part of the onboarding, when you see the leader or the, the manager that's it's, uh, actually exemplifying that change, it helps. The other thing, and, and even though we live in a very digital age and we're all there, I think, and I think Mark would agree with this, that you know, whenever we do a workshop, we, we pass out a book for every one of the uh, participants. And uh, it's the old-fashioned book. You know, it's paper and, and, and print <laughs> stuff like that. So, so it hangs around. And, and these things, even though we live in a digital world, it's not a PDF, and it has it's something like a life of its own. And so there's, there's often 30 or 40 books now about your client is the devil floating around the agency. <laughs> desk or it's a someone takes it home or it's hard to ignore i mean they can't throw away all of them so it kind of has a life of its own and i i I say that tongue-in-cheek because we all do live in a digital world but there's something about the reverence for a paper printed book that just uh, hangs on and uh, it's humorous to us how often that's been referred to i wonder how many people have have had it on their desk and, and had a client come in the office and have to explain it like all of a sudden you got a client sitting here who says, wait, what? You're reading books? We had, a, we had a client once that actually asked us. They said, we're glad for your workshop, and we all understand, but could just just could we call it something different than my client is the devil workshop? <laughs> so, so we don't call it that, of course. But because, uh, you know, you just have 50, 40, 50 people coming in for a meeting, a session, and well, I, can't, I can't talk to my client today. I, I tell her that I'm going to be in this. My client is a devil workshop. Wouldn't work out so well. So, <laughs> the name of the book, it works real well, but we call the workshop something different. <laughs> That's excellent. I mean, there is definitely something. I'm with you on the on the paperback, right? There, there's something about not being able to pass around digital copies that, that I think loses something for a lot of people. I have reams and reams, much to my wife's chagrin, bookshelves sure. filled with books, right? But uh, yeah, there's something yeah, it's, about it. There's a weight to it. There's a permanence. If, if you come in and see somebody's thumb drive on their desk, you don't say, well, what fascinating books do you have on your thumb <laughs> You come in and you get a book of any kind sitting on a desk. It's like, well, where'd you get this? Are you reading this? Or is this good? It's just, it's just we have a long history from the printed word way back to Gutenberg. And so we're trying to leverage that for sure. Yeah, that, yeah. I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm definitely with you on that. All right, so let's take a little change of perspective here. Um, you both are executives and professionals and, and out in the world. I'm curious to hear, hear from both of you. Um, what is, you know, you guys are prospects for other people that are looking to sell, sell wares or sell things. I'm curious what you guys find to be the most effective ways of selling to you. What do you look for when a salesperson or a marketing person consultant engages with you guys? What gets your attention? What makes you engage? What excites you about that prospect versus, oh, oh crap, I've got another salesperson calling me. <laughs> I would say that the thing that will catch me is the recognition that they're interrupting my day. So I like it when an email that comes across the transom or a call comes across the transom and the person acknowledges, I know I'm interrupting your day, 
but I believe this will be of interest to you. Here's why. I want that person to have done their homework enough to know what I do in my job, what my challenges are in my job, and how what they're selling could actually have some benefit uh, to me. And so I think that kind of start with acknowledging that I'm right off the bat as the uh, salesperson interrupting you and asking a favor and getting quickly to what's in it for me as the uh, consumer of that is the thing that will get me to either return the call or return the email. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree with Mark. And, uh, and I'm, I'm blessed with some good friends and colleagues and I talk a lot and I write very long emails, but that's not what to do to get my attention. Okay. So they, they indulge me that. So it's the point of being succinct and face to face is even fine, but get your, get your elevator speech out pretty quick because, um, I don't know you, and if you want to make an impression, then show that you've done some homework, and you can get right to the point. And uh, and give me an opportunity to I can contact you easily, but that it's not going to be like, can I call you every morning until you buy my product? Of course. <laughs> I think it's pretty uh, pretty straightforward. It's a recognition of I'm going to have to interrupt your day to go ahead and tell you about this, so I'm going to be very respectful of your time and your attention. If I can help, I'd love to talk to you. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, we're in, we're in the home stretch. And so we, now we have this question we ask all of our guests and uh, I'm very curious, based, especially with your guys' backgrounds and, and experiences. If you had the opportunity to say to your you know, prototypical consultant or salesperson, if you had an opportunity to give them one acceleration insight that you felt would make them more successful uh, in driving the results that they're after, what would that be and why? Well, mine is probably going to sound a little bit like a repetition, but do your homework. It's, you know, put in the time in front of the selling opportunity so that you know who you're talking to, you know why you're talking to them, you let them know why you're talking to them. I've had some salespeople who've worked for me who have sort of taken the tack of what I need to do is figure out, did we go to a college together? Did we, you know, are we both playing, our kids play soccer, that kind of thing. And I'll tell them, that's great. And that's the kind of thing you'll talk about, you know, maybe on the first face to face or when you're, you'll talk about a little bit down the line, but right when you get started, do your homework, really know why you're talking to this person and make it clear why you're talking to that person right from the beginning, because the first 15 seconds is all you've got to either interest them or have them totally turn off and not listen to anything else you say. Yeah, that, Mark, that sounds great, and I certainly agree with that. I would add a couple things. One is, of course, use telephone calls, email, any other kind of marketing outreach, but don't pass up any face-to-face opportunities if you can. Be alert to those, and I think uh, I think a lot of that that critical analysis is happening in a face-to-face situation. It can't always be possible, and it's the most expensive way to get together, but when you have something like that come up, it might not be your sales call. It might be some other thing that's happening, but to go with that face when you can. And the other thing is to, um, in that situation, have your homework done and be succinct about your value proposition, but come with ears open and really try to listen. In fact, ask it more like, would you indulge me the honor of telling me a little bit about what's, what's concerned for you and how I might help? Because I've found it good that, uh, if I'm allowed to talk, just like when I'm thinking when I talk to my prospects, I'd rather have them the opportunity to actually speak to me about what's going on. 
Excellent. Yeah. Great insights from both of you. Thank you very much for that. So if people that are listening to this podcast are interested in, in picking up a copy of the book, what's the easiest way to do that? Well, right now I would go to my client is the devil.com. It's a very humble website. We, we are psychologists, <laughs> people, not web developers. Okay. And uh, a lot of our work face to face, but uh, the book is available hardback or software at uh, my client is the devil.com. And uh, that's, that's probably the most straightforward way to do that. And is there a, a different way or a better way of connecting with you guys individually? If somebody had questions about something they've heard or something we've talked about on the podcast and they wanted to reach out to you and, and continue the conversation, is there a preferred way for that to happen? Well, the email's great and the email's on the website and it's, it's uh, uh, Steve at FedoracoMcKinney.com and Mark at FedoracoMcKinney.com. So it's kind of a, our last names and it's just our names, uh, Steve and Mark. Excellent. So it's all on the website. Yeah. Excellent, gentlemen. Well, I greatly thank you again for the time today. This has been excellent. Um, for those that have enjoyed the podcast, please take a moment to review it uh, on iTunes, share it with your friends, families, and coworkers, help us get the word out. Um, we, we do this for you. So we also want to hear back from you. So comments, uh, please send them our way. I highly recommend everyone go out uh, and get a copy of the book. Uh, if for nothing else, the cover art is amazing, as well as what you will find inside the book. Uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to Stephen Mark. They've been very gracious with their time and we, we greatly appreciate it. So gentlemen, again, thank you. And until we talk next time, best of luck out there. Hey, thank you, Chad. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.